Alright guys, we're going to do a Thank you. 
fathers are buried, my forefathers. But, but he, he's going to wait a moment before he explains what that city was. So the king said to me in verse 4, what, what was your request? Now, you have to appreciate Artaxerxes' willingness to be sympathetic in this. You know, he uh, cares about his cupbearer, he's really upset because back in his homeland things are bad. And so Artaxerxes says, what do you want? What, what can I do? You know, whatever. Wow, isn't that an opportunity? But that's also kind of tense because you don't know how the king might react to what you would suggest. So this is a very key moment, but, it, but it's a very uh, stressful moment. Now, Nehemiah has prayed for four months really about this moment. But now, wow, it's here. The king's recognized he's sad. He said it's because of my homeland. And the king says, okay, what do you want? What does Nehemiah do next? Before he says what he wants. He prays. Now, I'm assuming he doesn't drop to his knees and spend a half an hour praying while he's there talking to the king in mid-conversation. I'm assuming he's like just mentally saying, you know, please bless me now as I speak, Father, or something like that. There's, there's some real good in that. You know, one of my struggles is to maintain a constant thinking about the Lord and talking to him even briefly all through the day and in moments that are important and critical. It's, uh, it's you know, we, we kind of sometimes may have our prayer time, and then the rest of the time we're kind of on our own, you know. We, we said our prayers, <laughs> but really we need to live with a constant, you know, awareness of God, being able to talk to Him, even if it's briefly. Even if it's in mid-conversation, you're talking to somebody about something that's important and serious, about their, their spiritual life, about the Word, and it's, a, it's an important moment to be able to just mentally say to God, I need help right now. Please open this man's heart, or help, it, help me to say the wise thing here, or whatever. Now, if all we ever did was just kind of mentally firing off a, a brief phrase to God, that would hardly be adequate. We need our time to talk to God more openly in a more concentrated way. But what you see is this brief prayer is backed up by four months of, of more detailed, open praying, and so that fits together. Think about this statement. I read this somewhere, but I think this is a good statement. Those who are the boldest for God need to be praying the most. I might almost reverse that even. Those who pray the most are those who are the boldest for God. You know, when you're really recognizing how much you depend on God and you're constantly turning to Him and, and requesting His help, I think it gives you courage because you recognize that human factors are not the deciding things, that the Lord is behind it all and that you are with the Lord and so I think that's really encouraging. I mean, he's talking to the Persian emperor, asking, he's about to ask for permission to go back and fix the walls. 
And again, remember, Artaxerxes is the one who stopped it. So he's asking essentially for a reversal of his policy. But he's able to do that and, 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 and he's successful because God is stronger than the Persian king. God, God is the one who's in charge. And so he says, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor before you, you pretty much always make a request to a king that way. You know, you don't say, hey, do this for me. You say, if you would like to, you know, if you really want to do this, he says, then uh, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. He still doesn't use the word Jerusalem, which is interesting. And he's very courteous. But he, uh, he says, you know, send me back there so I can help rebuild don't you imagine Nehemiah was practically shaking, wondering what the king was going to say next? Well, the king is funny. He says, uh, how long will your journey be? And when will you return? He doesn't really say, yeah. But when he says, well, how long will it be? And when will you come back? That's sort of a way of granting the request. You know, that's sort of saying, okay, how long will you be gone? As if, yeah, if you're going, you know, when will you come back? Well, okay. So Nehemiah has been praying for a long time. But he hasn't just been praying. And we're going to see this all over Nehemiah. But he's also been planning. He's also been thinking about what he would need to do. Praying doesn't mean that I say, God, you just do this, and I'm going to sit back and watch you. When we're dependent on the Lord, we understand that the Lord wants us to be active in what's being done as well. Now, what he does here is, I gave him a definite time, and this has really got to be stressful, but seven and eight, if it please the king, then give me letters to be able to have safe passage through the provinces to Judah. He needs letters to the governor so that as he goes through, he, you know, it's okay. And, you know, he's not, uh, uh, you know, taken to somebody who's, who's doing something illicit. He's got permission from the king by letter to be going through these provinces. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, to provide the timber for the wall of the city and the house he's going to build for himself. Wow. That's a lot to ask, don't you think? I mean, in one sense, we'd say he was blessed to just get permission to go back. And he pours it on. You know, I think I would have even cut the time. You know, I can imagine, maybe I think it's going to take six months, but I've been afraid he wouldn't go for six months and I'd say three. And I can't imagine that I would ask for these extra things too. But think about it. A partially built wall is not really going to help. It's not going to provide the protection that's needed. Nehemiah is willing to be bold and courageous enough for ask, to ask for what he really needs. You know, he shows that he really trusts God. He's going to go ahead and make the full request of everything that he believes he needs. 
You know, and, and one thing he shows the king right there is he has a definite purpose. If he had been vague about uh, this, it would have looked like it was just kind of a dream or an impulse. But he's planned this out. He knows what he believes he needs. And, uh, and so he asks for it. Again, those who pray the most can be the boldest. And, and, and often I think we undersell. You know, we realize, you know, we, we, the right thing is this. But I'm not going to ask the person to do the right thing. I'm going to just kind of soft pedal. You know, kind of try to, to make sure that we will keep liking me or whatever. Instead of just boldly saying, you know, here's what's right. With dependence on God, with trust in God. So he planned all this out now. And, uh, and, and he, he asked all this. And uh, the king granted them to me. Because the good hand of my God was on me. You appreciate Nehemiah in this. As he's, he's telling about this in the first person. The king does it. But why does the king do it? God's hand is on He recognizes that. He knows that it's because of God. Now, I could do this at several points in Nehemiah. But I'm going to take a moment and, and, and talk about this. And we will refer back to this sometimes. But I really do think that it's interesting to see in Nehemiah how his praying and his planning and work fit together. If you pray for your daily bread, should you quit your job and just let God give it to you? Well, we understand that God intends for us to work. Now, does God give us our bread or do we work for it? And the answer is yes. God gives it to us as we do what he wants us to do and work for it. So that tells me when I pray and I'm dependent on God, it doesn't mean I don't act. Here's, here's a couple of cases for the book of Acts. I'm assuming you know these. If you don't, I'll tell you where they are and you can read them sometime. But in Acts 23, I believe it's verse 11, God told Paul while he's in Caesarea, no, where he's in, while he's in Jerusalem still, that He's going to eventually get to Rome and bear witness for him. Well, if he's eventually going to get to Rome and bear witness for him, he's not going to die until he gets there. So he's in Jerusalem, locked up. And his nephew comes and tells him there's this plot by some 40 Jews who have agreed not to eat anything until they ambush you and kill you. Uh, they're going to ask for you to be brought to the Sanhedrin, and they're going to ambush you and kill you on the way. Now, I can imagine being Paul and saying, well, I don't worry about it. I mean, God said I'm going to Rome, so hey, you can forget that, nothing's going to happen to me. No, it's not what he does. He sends the nephew through a, 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 you know, one of the officials there in the jail to the commander with instructions to have him tell the commander about the plot. And the commander whisks him off to Caesarea at night under heavy guard so this doesn't happen. After all, he's learned he's a Roman citizen. So uh, Paul didn't say, well, God said everything's going to be okay, therefore I don't need to act. He's still acting. Later in Acts 27, he's on board a ship in the storm. Remember all that? The shipwreck and so forth. And, and God tells him, nobody's going to die on board this ship. I've granted your life and the people who are sailing with you. And then, a little later, the sailors, they're really a gallant, courageous man, 
they, they try to escape in a lifeboat, you know, and abandon the ship. And of course, they're going to need the sailors to, to you know, get things worked out to, to get onto this island. And uh, Paul said, hey, if these guys leave the ship, we're gone. Well, I, if I had Paul, I'd have said, oh, well, it doesn't matter. God said we're all going to get there safely, so whatever the sailors do. No, when, when God makes promises and when we pray and depend on God, we still are supposed to do the things that are within our power. It's God that does it, but he does it using our abilities and doing the things we can do. Don't ever pray and think, okay, now I just relax and I wait for God to do it. Pray and trust and depend on God, but expect God to be using you to whatever extent your abilities allow and opportunities allow to help in the fulfillment of that prayer. All right, questions and comments on all that too, verse 8. I think it's kind of cool you're able to see how respected Nehemiah is in the cupbearers. You know, he's able to notice that this is sadness of heart, and he cares about that. But he also wants to know, like, when are you coming back? You know, he's even going to come back. Good point. to figure out whatever they can do 
to keep this uh, building project from being fulfilled. Thoughts or comments on that? All right, 11 to 16. So I went to Jerusalem, and there were three days, and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, and I, a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring into the dumb gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down, and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. All right. When Ezra came back in Ezra 8, uh, he rests for three days after the journey and then begins his business. So does Nehemiah here. He was three days there and then he arose on that third night. He and a few others with him. Uh, and what does he basically do that night? Yeah, basically kind of an infection, uh, infection tour to try to understand what the situation is. How bad are the walls? What's it going to take to repair them? He really needs, if he's going to leave the people to get the walls rebuilt, he needs to be able to make a realistic appraisal of what it's going to take. You know, how bad are they? How big is this? What's what going to take to get this project done? You can't really leave people if you don't know what you're trying to lead them to do. You haven't thought things through, seen what it's going to take, and be able to make some definite suggestions. You're not going to even have credibility. If it doesn't sound like you even know where this is at or what, it's, what the situation is. So he, he does that. But now he does it at night without telling people what he's doing. Because I think he wants to really know what he's talking about before he informs everybody of what he's there for and tries to get their involvement and cooperation. If, if he had sort of just thrown out some half-formed ideas, you know, piecemeal, and whoever comes along, it would not have been nearly as effective as withholding the information as to why he's there until he's had this chance to inspect, until he's got it planned out and he knows what he wants to say to them about it. You wonder, you know, here he is going around these walls that night seeing the whole damage and destruction. wonder how Nehemiah felt about that. I mean, how did he feel when he just heard the report from his brother about yeah. He was just devastated for days. I would assume this was a very, you know, emotionally difficult night for him. When he actually saw with his own eyes, this is how bad it really is. You know, this is not, Nehemiah's not trying to make a name for himself. Nehemiah's not trying to be a big shot. Nehemiah cares 
about the city of God. And, and this would have bound to be really hard for him. This is really not Nehemiah's project. This is for the Lord. This is for the city of God. And so, so that's what he does. He goes out and he makes that uh, night inspection. He sees just all the way around what this, this wall situation is. Comments or questions on that? Something just strikes me odd all of a sudden here. I've always assumed that the damage to the walls, the, the having been burned with fire and broken down, goes back to Nebuchadnezzar's destruction, which was over 150 years prior to this. This would be like us going and seeing the ruins of the Civil War and saying that we rebuilt it. But I think actually, we talked about this yesterday, that you were here, Ezra 4. There had been an effort to rebuild in the early part of Artaxerxes' reign that had gotten stopped. And so I suspect that a lot of this is the more recent damage also. I don't know how far they've gotten to that. But the enemy's right of letter and Artaxerxes get back to the creek. Yes, Joe. It's supposed to be a combination of both. Right. They didn't get very far because it's the right of animal. Right. So, so it, it may, you probably talked about some of both. But yeah, it's... Any way you look at it, wow. There's got to be discouraged. Just, I was looking here, and we see Nehemiah's prayer and his preparation. Part of that is, he was a cupbearer. We don't have any inclination that he was a builder or a mastermind of any kind, yet he learned what he had to to be able to do the Lord's work. Right, yeah, good, good point. He may not have had specific training and uh, wall building, uh, you know, Whatever, whatever kind of degree you need for that. So, David. Do you have any comment on verse uh, 12, uh, what God put into his heart? This kind of popular idea, but kind of mystical, like God guiding us thing. Like, God put it on my heart to do this. Like, in what sense does this mean, mean to you? Well, I think we give God the credit for everything. But, I mean... I don't know that that means that God just uh, spoke something in Nehemiah's ear. I mean, we understand that God sent Hananiah to him, that he hears about that. And I would say that Nehemiah's concern for that city was a result of God's work in his life to make him focus on the Lord's interest. So I think we would see any spiritual attitude or impulse as, you know, something God has done in us, but not that he's whispering in our ear. We, the, the Bible writers do give a lot of, you know, focus and credit to God for even good attitudes and good desires, but I don't think it's in some sort of a mystical way we're just supposed to listen to our inner voice or something like that. My God's behind it. If it hadn't been for that, 
This is a rather unusual thing that Nehemiah is even able to go back. God's hand is behind all of it. All right, 17 to 20. Then I said to him, You see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lies waste, and its gates have burned with fire. Come, let us build the walls of Jerusalem, that we may longer, no longer be a reproach. And I told them of the hand of my God, which had been healed upon me, and also the king's words, words that he had spoken to me. So they said, Let us rise up and build. Then they set their hand to this good work. But when Sabal, the Hermonite, and Tobias, the Ammonite official, and Geshur, the Arabian Arab, heard of it, they laughed at us and despised us. I said, What is this thing that you are doing? And will you rebel against the king? So I answered them and said to them, The God of he- heaven himself will conquer us. Therefore, we have we who search will arise and build. But you have no heritage or right or memorial in Jerusalem. Alright, so in 17, he talks to the people. And it's interesting what he says in 17. It's a lot like what was said in 1.3. He describes Jerusalem a lot like his brother had described it to him a few months before. He said, you see the bad situation we're in. Jerusalem's desolate. Its gates are burned by fire. You know, you know how bad this is. And, and, and it's a disgrace. It's a disgrace to the Lord. Uh, and, and so he's concerned about that. And he says, come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so that we will no longer be a reproach. So he's uh, encouraging them to work. But I appreciate the fact it's weak. You know, we're in this bad situation. We need to get busy, busy work. Because I think a lot of times, we would have come from the outside and we would have said, well, you see what a problem you've got, and you guys better get started working on this. But he wants to share in that. It's his problem also. He wants to work together with them. Sometimes it does help when you get somebody from the outside to come in. You know how it is in church sometimes. You get used to your problems. You get, you get sort of accustomed to the things you don't do right and the things, the attitudes that you have that aren't right. And somebody comes in from the outside and says, wait a minute, this isn't right. <laughs> you know, this isn't the right attitude to have. Because sometimes when you're coming from the outside, you can see something more clearly. You're not kind of numbed to it by having seen it for so long. When you come in from the outside like that, though, you have to be very careful. Because if this becomes a finger-pointing thing, well, man, I can't believe you all are like this, and why aren't you doing something about it instead of, hey, we have this problem, let's build. So I appreciate Nehemiah's attitude in that. I think that's helpful. And he tells them how the hand of God had been favorable to him about the king's words. I mean, that shows you something right there. You know, I mean, the fact that he's got Artaxerxes I mean, not just uh, acceptance, but, but uh, you know, support in, in this rebuilding. He's got letters to the king's forester to get the material. I mean, who but God could have changed the king from an opponent of the rebuilding of the walls to a patron, to actually the one who's, who's encouraging it to be done and who's supporting it? I mean, doesn't that show you that God has been behind this? 
and that the Lord is really, you know, doing this and, and is, is involved in this. I mean, that's just really an exciting thing. It's, a, it's an encouraging thing um, to, to see all of that. Um, and so he says, uh, so they put their hands to the good work. You know, this is, this is going to be this is going to be something that needs to be done. All of them need to work together. So they're they're going to start on that. Well, what about the enemies? <laughs> they are not happy, and they mock us and despise us and say, "What is this thing you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king?" Now, that's pretty similar to their earlier tactics back in Ezra chapter 4, that had brought those reconstruction efforts to a halt. They're really bluffing. They're really just trying to intimidate. And it's not true. Are they rebelling against the king? Well, not at all. The king has given his total support to this project. It's not surprising when God's servants get unjustly accused. That is a part of that. That's going to happen. And it happens often. God's servants are often accused unjustly. So what do you do in that case? You're starting to really do the work of God, and you start getting this plaque from people who are saying, ah, you're not doing the right thing. That's not what God wants you to do. You know, and just, uh, you know, this is, this is stupid. This is ridiculous. You're... You know, what do they say? You're narrow-minded. You're trying to be a control freak. You're, I mean, people say all kinds of stuff, you know. And, and what do you do about that? Well, I answered them and said, now, if I had been Nehemiah, you know what I think I would have answered? I think I would have said, hey, I've got the letters right here from the king. The king is totally behind this project. Don't you talk to me about what the king wants. I've been the cupbearer of the king, for crying out loud. So what he said. He says, the God of heaven will give us success. That's a lot more important than the king. If, if, if it's okay with the Lord, if the Lord is, is, is in favor of what we're doing, it really doesn't matter what anybody else does. It doesn't matter what they say about it. Their opinion doesn't count if we've got the backing from God. He cites the higher authority, which is not the first king. It's God's authority. And, and he says, the, the God of heaven will give us success, therefore we as servants will arise and build. But you have no portion right or memorial in Jerusalem. You know, we're going to build. This is not your business. And we have God's authority. And that's it. You know, the opposition has forfeited their right to have any involvement in this. They are not God's people. They are not in favor of God's interests. So just keep going. So often we get sidetracked. Somebody starts, you know, belittling us, talking down about us, objecting, and we quit working to try to deal with the objection. Nehemiah answers, and, and we just go right on. We have God's approval. We don't need anything else. I think one of the hardest things for us as Christians is to deal with opposition, is to deal with the fact that, that people... Are, are against it. And I think a lot of times when we get opposition, we tend to feel like, what am I doing wrong? What, 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 I guess I didn't say that right. I, I guess I might, I must not use good judgment. Well, do you see that in the first century? How much opposition did the apostles get to their preaching in the book of Acts? 
Very much. You ever got run out of town because you're preaching the gospel? And then the next town, and then the next town, and they're coming from the towns before you to get you run out of the next town. And they never say, where do we go wrong? Well, what do we say wrong? They do the right thing. There's going to be opposition to the preaching of the gospel. Now, if the opposition is valid because we're not doing God's work, that's another question. Well, when we are doing God's work, then we just need to continue. So that's, that's what I've got to say uh, for, for right now. Uh, that's uh, Nehemiah chapter 2. Thank you for, for listening and uh, appreciate your attention and encouragement. Just a couple quick things before you head to your first class. Um, at, uh, in Huckleberry, right up the hill, uh, go, the classroom is in the basement. Go through the side door. Don't, don't go through the front door. Uh, for those of you last year, same thing. Uh, go through the side door. The front entrance is uh, where the kitchen staff is staying. And so if you want to make the kitchen staff mad and eat spit out of your food all week, you go through the front door. I would suggest you go through the basement door on the side. Um, there are some pens and uh, paper, some notebooks, and there's also some loose leaf back there in the back. If you want a notebook or if you want some loose leaf paper or if you need a pen, feel free to grab them. I have more if you want those. Uh, if, we, if we run out, I can get you more. And uh, this is a part of camp tradition. I made a mistake on the schedule. And so um, follow, your, follow your schedule as far as what teacher you're going to go to. But as far as Simon and Don, is that right? Simon and Don? Uh, those two classes, the classrooms are switched. Um, Don is in Blueberry Pavilion, and Simon is in Huckleberry Basement. Uh, so just... And if you walk in there and uh, you're supposed to be in Simon's class and Don is standing there, you're in the wrong place. Um, or vice versa. Okay? If that doesn't make sense, just uh, get with me. I'll try to help you out. All right. Let's head to our first class then. Yeah. <laughs>